Welcome everyone to this month's episode of AAA Sky. Today we're discussing quantum physics with astronomer and physics professor George Greenstein. I'm Maggie Machinsky. And I'm Stanley Ferdig. AAA Sky is produced by the Amateur Astronomers Association of New York, whose mission is to promote the study of astronomy and to emphasize its cultural and inspirational value. Find out more about the AAA at aaa.org. First, here's word from our president, Brian Berg. Hello and welcome to AAA Sky, the official podcast of the Amateur Astronomers Association of New York. I am Brian Berg, the president of AAA. Thank you, as always, for joining us. And before we get into the podcast and the podcast description, I just want to remind everyone, please go to AAA.org, our website, where you could see everything that we're involved in, whether it's loading telescopes through libraries or our astrophotography meetups or our lectures, which, by the way, Lecture is coming up this coming Tuesday. Make sure to register for it. We have our classes and we have our public observing events. Come out and join us around New York City and look up at the stars. In today's podcast, we'll dive into one of the great mysteries of astrophysics as Stan talks with astrophysicist Dr. George Greenstein about his new book, Quantum Strangeness, wrestling with Bell's theorem and the ultimate nature of reality. This is a subject that the doctor has grappled with since he was a student, and what he's learned is fascinating. This is a really great interview. I hope all of you enjoy it as much as I do. And with that, Stan, take it away. George Greenstein was a Sidney Dillon Professor of Astronomy at Amherst College until his retirement in 2012. He did his undergraduate studies at Stanford and graduate school at Yale. His research initially involved cosmology and the physics of the early universe, and then he broadened it to include pulsars and neutron stars and relativistic astrophysics in general. Towards the midpoint of his career, George's interests shift to writing. He's the author of four books on science intended for the general public, one of which won two science writing awards, as well as authoring two textbooks. Dr. Greenstein is a recognized leader in the effort to reform astronomy education. He's been a member of the American Astronomical Society's Astronomy Education Board and has co-organized a series of workshops for department chairs of the most prestigious universities in the country, which led to a set of proposed goals for reform of introductory astronomy courses nationwide. We spoke to him at his home via Zoom. Hello, George. Welcome to AAA Sky. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So we're here today to discuss quantum physics, uh, in particular Bell's theorem, which our listeners may or may not be familiar with. Let's just say right at the outset that although quantum physics has been a tremendously successful theory, it's essentially strange and highly unintuitive. And I guess that's what led you to write your book appropriately titled Quantum Strangeness. But before we get into the physics of it, maybe you can give us some context as to how you did come to write it. Okay, I would be happy. 
Um, yes, quantum physics is strange. And uh, when I first encountered it in college, I remember feeling very strongly, this is the strangest thing I've ever encountered in my life. And many, many years later, I decided to get serious and try to understand it. And <laughs> I've been living so much of my life just saying, I don't understand this stuff. It's very, very strange. So I spent really several years trying to understand it. And at the end, I made a great discovery. And the discovery is, Greenstein, you thought it was strange. You didn't know the half of it. <laughs> Quantum mechanics is the most mysterious thing I've ever encountered in my life. I've worked on black holes. I've worked on the expanding universe. They don't hold a candle to quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is absolutely strange. When I was in college, I was not one of these students who got everything right away. Uh, I found my science and math courses hard. And I remember in all of them feeling... You know, I don't really understand this. The teacher is so confident, and I, I just don't get this. I suppose I'll figure it out later, but for now, i got to keep my head above water somehow, and how do I do that? And I decided the way to do it is when it came time for an exam, just to put down on the exam what the teacher was telling me to say. And when it came time to write down a formula, write down the formula the teacher told me to write down. And when I had to solve a problem, do it the way the teacher told me to do it. And I did all those things and they worked. Then I passed the courses and blah, blah, blah. And it's true that in the long run, I did come to an understanding. You know, years and years later, I realized that, yeah, by now I understand this, that, and the other thing. It, it had worked. But that never happened with quantum mechanics. Even as the years rolled by, I never felt I understood quantum mechanics. It just stayed perpetually a mystery. And I encountered a guy who was a friend who was a physicist also, and he had an office just down the hallway from me, and he was just as mystified as I was. So we got together and we talked. And we talked and we talked and we talked for a long time. And we did other things. We did lots of things. And one of the things we did is we wrote a book. And that book was a technical book aimed at students taking a course in quantum mechanics. And our goal was to really explained how bizarre quantum theory was. And one of the things we knew we were going to have to write about was something called Bell's theorem. John Bell had proved this theorem that had something to do with all this. And I had tried to read up on Bell's theorem. I, I couldn't understand it. And the more I spent working on it, the more I felt I did not understand it. And believe it or not, Stanley, I actually thought at one point, why don't we just skip it? We don't have to write about Bell's theorem. I mean, come on, we can just. <laughs> my friend, my friend said, George, we got to do it. We have to write about it. So we worked and we worked. And eventually we came to some sort of an understanding of Bell's theorem. And we wrote that chapter and we wrote the whole book and the book got published. And here's what did not happen. What did not happen is somebody came to us and said, you know, you guys really messed up on Bell's theorem. Nobody said that. So we figured, well, we got it. We figured <laughs> out, Bell's I guess I understand Bell's theorem now. Well, that was many years ago and years passed. And 
Stanley, you're not going to believe this, but this is a true story. At yes. one point, I, I was brushing my teeth and I stopped and I looked at the mirror and I said, Greenstein, you're a big fake, aren't you? You were faking it when you wrote that chapter. When you wrote that chapter, you were doing the very same thing that you did when you were in college. You said what everybody told you to say, and you wrote down all the formulas that everybody was writing down, but you never understood a word of what you were writing. And that was a real challenge. <laughs> You're being too hard on yourself. Well, no, I am not. So I, this was a couple of years ago, and I decided, okay, it's time to get going here. And so I really had to work on Bell's theorem and come to an understanding. So it all has to do with a fight that took place between two of the people who created quantum theory, Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein. Uh, there were a whole bunch of people who invented quantum mechanics, but Einstein and Bohr were two of them. Yes. Einstein, Einstein's Nobel Prize was not for relativity. It's for what he did in quantum theory. What they were arguing about was the uncertainty principle. And let me give you a, an example of the uncertainty principles. Suppose you and I are playing catch. You're throwing me a ball. And I'm running. And you want to throw the ball so that I catch it. So you take a close look at where I am. And you take a close look at how fast I'm moving. And then you throw the ball such that when the ball gets there, I'll get there. And you're really good. And I catch it. And we, you and I both noticed that the ball followed this arc. You threw it a little bit up, and it went up, and then down, and it came right to me. You can't do that with quantum mechanics. If you send an electron, you could not do that. You can do it with a ball, but not with a quantum particle. Right. You can emit a quantum particle, and I can detect a quantum particle. But quantum theory, there are two things that quantum theory doesn't do. One of them is it doesn't talk about the trajectory that that electron took. Quantum theory never talks about the path the electron took from you to me. And it also does not allow you to find out where I am and how fast I'm going. At the same time. At the same time. That's the uncertainty principle. You can right. find out where I am, or you can find out how fast I'm going, but you can't do both. Right. The, uh, the more refined your measurement of uh, location is, the more unrefined, the more vague your measurement of speed is and vice versa, right? Absolutely correct. Yes, indeed. That's it. So Einstein thought, look, the electron is following a definite path and it starts out at one place and it ends up at the other place and it certainly took a path to get there and quantum mechanics is not able to describe that path. So that's a failing of quantum mechanics. Einstein said quantum mechanics is incomplete. It's also true that the electron has a definite position and a definite speed. The uncertainty principle says quantum mechanics cannot know those things. That means there's something wrong with quantum mechanics. Again, quantum mechanics is incomplete. Niels Bohr said, no, there's something much more profound going on here. There's no such thing as the path the electron took, says Bohr. There's no such thing as where it is and how fast it's going. Well, Einstein thought that was all hokum, and they had big fights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
There are three very famous battles they fought. Uh, the first one was at a conference that took place uh, and at dinner, Einstein described a way to beat the uncertainty principle. He had come up with a way to find out where something was and how fast it was going. And Bohr got extremely upset. And then he went around that evening talking to everybody saying, Einstein's got to be wrong. I'm very worried. Apparently over that night in his hotel room, Bohr figured out a mistake that Einstein had made because at breakfast the next morning, Bohr described what was wrong with Einstein's thing. So Bohr won that part. A couple of years later, there was a repeat, another conference in which Einstein had come up with another way to beat the uncertainty principle, and Bohr shot that one down too. But then something happened called the EPR paradox, EPR, Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen. That was a scientific paper that they wrote, which invented this thing called quantum entanglement. And they used quantum entanglement to show you could beat the uncertainty principle. And when Bohr read that paper, he was thrown for a loop. And everybody who has ever read that paper has been thrown for a loop. It's a very mysterious, hard paper to understand. Um, it's exercised a fascination over people for generations, that EPR. It's called the EPR paradox. Right. The, EPR the EPR paradox is what Bell's theorem is about. And what the fight was, is there a trajectory that the electron is following? Is, does the electron have a position and a velocity? And what Bell's theorem shows is that there's an experiment you could do which will answer that question. An actual experiment that will once and for all conclusively tell you whether the electron has a path or does not have a path. It's not a philosophical argument. It's an experiment. And that experiment was done. That experiment was done, and the answer is, there is no path. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is the Alice and Bob experiment? Yep, it involves quantum entanglement, which involves these two detectors called Alice and Bob. And when you do that experiment, the result is there is no such thing as the position and the velocity. There is no such thing as the path. Now, I want to ask you a question. Please. Do you understand that? Uh, literally, yes. How that can be, not necessarily. That proves you were an honest man. <laughs> I, <laughs> I try to be. I have a, I have a very good detector of, of hokum. If anybody says, oh, yeah, that makes sense, I know that person is a fake. This is absolutely enigmatic. And I have talked to a lot of scientists who work in this field, and I say, what do you make of this? What is it telling us? And nobody can answer that question to my satisfaction. It is, and this is what I mean when I say quantum mechanics is strange. There is simply no way to move beyond this astonishment that we all feel at this result. Okay, I'm suitably astonished. Um, <laughs> so I thought Einstein particularly objected among other things, to the fact that 
quantum mechanics is probabilistic. Yes. Whereas he kind of liked things which are well-determined. Yes. His, his, his attitude was there is a real world. And the goal of science is to understand it. And part of that goal is to be able to make very definite predictions. And quantum theory doesn't do that. It only tells you probabilities of things happening. But it does make predictions which we use every day. No? Yes, it certainly does. And the astonishing thing is that these predictions are always correct. And they have been verified to a tremendous accuracy. And we use quantum mechanics every day. I mean, the podcast that you and I are doing right now relies on quantum mechanics for our laptops to work. Uh, the internet relies on quantum mechanics. Uh, electricity needs quantum mechanics. The light that is illuminating you and me needs quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics tells us totally true things about these phenomena, but they only tell us probabilities. Right. You know, Einstein had this famous saying, God does not play dice with the universe. And quantum mechanics says God very definitely does play dice with the universe. And these experiments show that quantum mechanics is correct. So let me try and... Uh... Imagine this. So right now you're in Amherst and I'm in Wyndham, New York. And we're both fairly certain that we're where we, where we are. Um, but that's really just a probability in a, in a macro world. Uh, and that there is some vanishingly small probability that maybe one of us is not really where I just said. That is absolutely correct. You said vanishingly small. Well, if we're talking about you, let me first talk about the electron. Okay, that's easier, yes. That in some sense, that's easier. Quantum mechanics says that if you try to specify where the electron is, you are not able to specify how fast it's going with perfect accuracy. You can roughly decide where it is, and then you'll roughly know how fast it's going. Now, that roughly is huge for the electron. Uh, the electron could be all over the place if you specify exactly how fast it's going. Whereas for something like you and me, that roughliness is tiny. It is so small that we can't even detect the roughliness of it. For big objects like you and me and Mack trucks and tennis balls and mosquitoes, we can specify to a huge accuracy where they are and how fast they're going. But if we had a really good microscope, we would see that there's a sort of an ambiguity in there. With the electron, the ambiguity is so great that it's all encompassing. So quantum theory is beset by this ambiguity, which has no consequence for big things like you and me, but huge consequences for anything small, like atoms and molecules. Nevertheless, it makes these phenomenally accurate predictions. So how can a theory be so successful when it is about something that it cannot describe? <laughs> That's an excellent question. And that is the question. So to go back to your EPR paper, which you mentioned, yeah. Um, was that where 
Uh, they talked about hidden variables, which maybe we should describe. Sure. Hidden variables is a very fancy way to talk about where the electron is, how fast it's going, and what the path is that it's taking. Uh, they are variable because, you know, the position could be here or there. The velocity could be this or that. The path could be a parabola or a circle or something else. They are hidden in that we don't see them. And quantum mechanics will not talk about it. The question is, do they exist? If, hidden, if you decide that hidden variables exist, then you were deciding that the electron has a definite position, definite speed, definite path. If you were deciding hidden variables do not exist, you were saying there ain't no such thing. Right. So Einstein was absolutely wedded to the idea that hidden variables exist. And I want to tell you, so was John Bell. John Bell at one point said, look, things have properties. Right. That means, as far as he was concerned, hidden variables exist. Um, so let me tell you about his attitude towards his theorem. <laughs> I, I sort of misspoke when I described what his theorem proves. His theorem doesn't prove that these... No, let me say that more carefully. Okay. If you do an experiment the experiment that Bell's theorem tells you that you have to do. What that experiment tells you is that there is no such thing as the hidden variables if there is no such thing as non-locality. Non-locality is something that Einstein called spooky action at a distance. It is possible that hidden variables exist if you accept spooky action at a distance. If you accept that things can influence each other instantaneously, faster than light, over trillions of miles, then there is such a thing as the position and the velocity and the trajectory. What John Bell thought that his theorem proved is that non-locality is real. John Bell personally thought that the universe does have definite positions and velocities. He was willing to accept that. But that this spooky action at a distance is happening all the time. And things are influencing each other over gigantic distances instantaneously in a way that completely violates everything we know about the rest of physics. Right. Bell's idea was that his theorem proves that the world is absolutely connected in this infinite web of entanglement extending over all of space. It involves something going faster than light, but that something is not causation. In the first case, there's no object that's going faster than light, and there's not even a cause. It's a connection that does not involve causality. But let me give you an example of this quantum entanglement. These experiments that were done that test Bell's theorem involved Alice and Bob, and you've got somebody halfway between Alice and Bob. That somebody sends out two particles that are entangled with each other. Alice gets one, Bob gets the other. Alice is right here on the Earth, and Bob is on Mars. Okay. Bob takes a look at his particle, and that instantaneously predicts what Alice's particle will be like. 
And that prediction is instantaneous. If, if Alice is on Mars and Bob is on the Earth, and they both take a look at their particles just the same instant, but Bob was microscopically before Alice, he has created the reality that Alice is just about to find out about. Right. And that is not causation. It is not some message that Bob sent to Alice. It's just, well, physicists call it entanglement. They call it correlation. Yeah. It's a purely quantum phenomenon that has no analog in daily life. It's not the same thing that you look at your watch and it says 1030 and I look at my watch and it says 1030. It's not that. It's a much more enigmatic um, action at a distance. So, uh, spooky action at a distance for, uh, which is a wonderful phrase. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's still spooky even today. Well, maybe we should get back to, so John Bell, um, derived this theorem and the results of that, as he said, were that, Spooky, at a spooky action at a distance does happen. Is, did I get that right? It is definitely true that spooky action at a distance happens all the time. It has been confirmed over and over again. It's real. It happens. Bell's theorem uses that to derive his results. Uh, so he, Bell did not invent this. EPR invented it. Bell's theorem involves using that entanglement to be able to prove this weird thing about hidden variables. So what is the signification of Bell's theorem? What, did, what does it tell us um, in... Right. I'll give it to you in one long, one long sentence. If you believe there is no spooky action at a distance, then there is no such thing as where an electron is and how fast it's moving and the path it's taking. If you believe there is spooky action at a distance, then it is entirely possible that the electron is definitely at a place, definitely going at a certain speed, definitely follows a certain path. But then you must accept that the world is infinitely connected in this completely insane way that does not involve causation. Right. And you also have to accept that we don't understand how spooky action at a distance happens. Understand is a tricky word. There are equations <laughs> of quantum there are equations of quantum mechanics and it follows very straightforwardly from quantum mechanics. The problem is that quantum mechanics is so strange. Matter of fact, so this goes back to this goes back to how you described the mathematics class. That's yeah. kind of a similar kind of thing. It was like, yeah, we could write equations and they will be coherent and etc. But that doesn't mean we feel like we get this. I think you've expressed it perfectly. And could I now move on to a personal, strictly personal story? Please do. Once I realized that I didn't understand Bell's theorem, I started working. And I worked and I worked and I worked. And let me tell you, I went on for a long time. And I could not even explain what it was that I didn't understand. 
I, I would say, Greenstein, what's wrong? And I couldn't say what was wrong. And it was very frustrating. And it went on and on for, I mean, I'm telling you, months. And after a while, and I permanently felt that nothing was happening, that I was stuck. Nevertheless, every so often I would stop and remember what I had been thinking about a month ago and realize that what I was thinking about now was different than what I was thinking about a month ago. That the mystification I felt now was different than the mystification I felt a month ago. And Stanley, I have this image in mind of walking backwards. When you walk backwards, you never know where you're going until you've already gotten there. When you walk backwards, <laughs> you, never, you never know what's happening until it was through happening. And that's what I felt about this process. And it went on for a very long time. And suddenly there was a moment when everything clicked. And it was so vivid and so striking that I wrote down exactly when it was and what time of day it was. Let me go get, I can find that for you. Just one sec. Okay. 11 a.m., Friday, July 10, 2015. Another bright and sunny day. Big thunderstorm last night. What I realized, what I realized in that instant was why I had been so confused for so long. The reason was that I had learned a way to think about the electron in its path, and that way was quantum mechanics. It had been rammed down my throat when I was in school. I also had another way to think about the electron in its path. That was, I visualized it. In my mind, the electron is sort of silvery. It's actually sort of silvery in my mind. And it's a little tiny thing, it's round, and it's right there, and it's going so fast. And what had me discombobulated was I was thinking about the electron both of those ways at the same time. I was smoothly moving from the quantum description to my image in my mind, and it was totally unconscious that I was just simultaneously doing this. And that's got what got me so absolutely discombobulated. If I stuck with the quantum theory, it's totally straightforward. If I stuck with my vivid image in my mind, it's very vivid and it's wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so, when I think of, when I try to visualize an electron, I kind of think of like an, you know, in, in, almost infinitely small asterisk or something like that. But There we are. So you have yeah. in your mind an image. Yes, which is well, wrong. Well, that image is wrong. Einstein had his mind in image, and he was wrong too. So we, you and I are in good company. I'll say. Uh, we are in very fine company. Einstein and Greenstein and Fertig all have an image of an electron. And they're all wrong. But the quantum theory is totally straightforward. And it works. And with not too much calculus, you can do it. I mean, I learned this stuff when I was 19 years old. I couldn't understand it. But if you just stick with the equations, they're going to work. That's the amazing thing about quantum mechanics is that it works. It, it's it's one of the most successful theories ever uh, when we think right. of its applications in the world, which you mentioned earlier. It is one of the most successful theories 
human beings have ever invented. It's, it's a total triumph and it's totally mysterious. And totally weird. Yeah. So you followed a personal journey with respect to quantum mechanics and Bell's theorem and understanding them. And your book entitled Quantum Strangeness uh, traces that journey as at the same time that it traces your personal journey at the same time it tries to explain the strangeness of this. So it's in a very, very appropriate title. So what should, uh, what should our listeners make of this? What they should make of it is how mysterious quantum theory is and how magical it is. And if you ask for my personal reaction to it, I love a good mystery. <laughs> you and me both. Yeah. But it is totally strange. I cannot wrap my mind around it but I love it. I feel the same way. So I do, if you accept, I have um, one last question I'd like to ask you, which we, tip, we typically ask every guest on AAA Sky, which has nothing to do with, nothing necessarily to do with quantum mechanics, um, but has everything to do with New York City, which is the home of the AAA. And the question is, what is your favorite place in New York City? <laughs> oh my. Well, I'll tell you my favorite place. It is a photography gallery. It is a, since I retired, I have gotten involved with a group of photographers based in New York City. It's called Soho Photo Gallery. We have our own gallery. It's down in Tribeca. There's a little quantum for you. It's called Soho Photo Gallery, but it's in Tribeca. That fits <laughs> with the quantum strangeness. We are a community of photographers. We have gallery space. We give shows, and we're always looking for people to join us. So any of your members who are photographers themselves, join us. Well, I'll definitely have to check it out. And therefore, everyone who listens, we should we should check it out. It's called again? Soho Soho Photo Gallery. Just look it up in on Tribeca. the web. And it's in Tribeca. And we have shows and we're always looking for new members. And it has become a wonderful group of friends that I have in the city. Well, OK, I guess that just about wraps it up. Thank you again, George, for spending your time with AAA Sky. It's been a fascinating journey. Well, Stanley, thank you very much. I really enjoyed our talk. So, Stan, in listening to this episode, you know, I think many of our listeners may be a bit intimidated by the subject itself. But my two biggest takeaways were, one, how relatable George was, and two, just how funny he was. You know, it's it's not often you come across um, professional astronomers or mathematicians or you know, people in STEM fields that are funny. And I can say that because I'm in a STEM field. Um, well, more power you to know, you. Yeah, right. And, and 
uh, one of the things that really made me laugh was how um, he was talking about his one college class and how, you know, he just wrote down the equations and solved for everything that his professor told him to do. That is exactly how I got through differential equations in college. You know, I think that's how we all get through college because <laughs> I certainly had a, a, an experience like that too. So maybe George is just an archetype for all of us. So I want to go back to this issue of entanglement, which George did speak about. When two particles are entangled, they have the opposite spin along a given axis. So that if you, for example, you'll take an electron, an entangled electron, a pair of entangled electrons, and you measure the spin of one of them, then the spin of the other electron is instantaneously determined which will be the opposite spin because I have to sum to zero. So the problem is that instantaneous is faster than the speed of light, which, I mean, we all know the speed of light is incredibly fast, but it's not instantaneous across distances. So how does that work? How is that possible? I still don't think anybody knows even today, but it bothered Einstein because that entanglement suggested faster than light transmission of information. And it bothered John Bell, obviously. And it certainly bothered George as well, enough for him to make a book out of it. Well, Stan, it's bothering me too. I can tell you that. Um, but, you know, I kind of enjoy these, uh, I guess, brain teaser, if you will. I don't I think this is even too complex to refer to it as that. But these are subjects and um, theories that really make you think, you know, it, it makes you think how the universe works. And then this is a, at a higher level, you know, protons, neutrons, electrons, a very simple form. But when you think about the world as a whole, everything is made up of them, right? I kind of think of these things sometimes when I'm laying in bed at night and then I don't sleep till like two or 3 a.m. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, um, you're, the only, you're the first person I ever met who can't sleep because of protons and electrons. But Not I'm strictly sure because be of protons and electrons. It's one thing that leads to another, that leads to another, that leads to another. And then yeah, suddenly, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, we're on transmission nebulae. Well, I think what we can say is for those of us who live in the macro world, the life of a particle is just entirely foreign to us. Yes, agreed. These are subjects and theories that really make you think. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, the AAA Sky Listener Challenge where we ask you a question about an astronomy topic and award a prize to the winner, select at random from amongst all correct answers. In our last episode for the Listener Challenge, we asked you which U.S. state has the highest concentration of dark sky parks, at least according to Matthias Schmidt. How did our listeners do, Maggie? Well, as Matthias mentioned in his interview, the state with the highest concentration of dark sky parks is Utah. And we have a winner. Selected at random from among all correct answers is Joe Geller. Congratulations, Joe. We'll be contacting you to get you your preferred size for your AAA Sky hoodie and your mailing address. Congratulations to you, Joe. 
So Maggie, what's our listener challenge for today? Well, our question for today, Stan, is the White House just made a request to Congress for NASA's next budget, which is a record in terms of nominal dollars. We want to know from you, how much is that budget to the nearest billion? You can enter by sending your answer in an email to listenerchallenge at aaa.org. Be sure to get your entry in by the deadline of midnight, April 20th, Eastern Daylight Time, for a chance to win a hoodie. And if you're not a member, stop by AAA.org to hear more about the AAA and how you can become part of it. Use the code AAASKY, that's A-A-A-S-K-Y-2-2, to get a 15% discount on your first year membership fees. And if you want to contact us at AAASKY, you can email us at AAASKY at AAA.org. Keep your comments coming. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. That's our show for this month. Tune in next month to hear me interview remarkable high school student Yui Hasegawa, who this past year created the AAA's Telescope Loaner Program with the New York Public Library, and how she went about making this idea of her as a reality for all of New Yorkers. AAA Sky audio editing and original music is by Preston Staley. Our technical producer is Parker Bussier. 